useless and we are running out of time. We're looking at mass starvation within 10 years. The reality is we're sleepwalking into a catastrophe. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Marine Vandergeer. And I'm Jessica Townsend. And we are going to be talking about citizens' assemblies. And this is going to be a full-length podcast. Uh, over the rebellion, we've had many podlets on little subjects which have been spontaneous and reflected what has been happening in the spaces during the rebellion. But this one is treating a very important subject for Extinction Rebellion, which is, as Marine says, Citizens' Assembly. What, what is a Citizens' Assembly, Marine? Well, we're going to be learning all about Citizens' Assemblies. And the reason why we're talking about it is because it's one of our three demands. So demand one being the government needs to tell the truth about the crisis that we're in. Demand number two is going down to zero carbon emissions. And then demand number three, which is what we'll be talking about today, is that we want a citizens assembly to be created to navigate us through the uh, ecological and climate crisis. Now, these interviews were recorded before the rebellion. And at that point, we were interested in a sort of theoretical way as to what citizens' assemblies were. But now the situation on the ground has changed. Yeah, so uh, we're now on day nine of the rebellion, which started on the 15th of April 2019. And we've now started getting MPs openly interested in citizens' assemblies. And we've even had a few MPs writing to secretaries saying, you know, we fully support a citizens' assembly on the climate emergency. So uh, this is very exciting. So it's not quite as hypothetical anymore as it was a few weeks ago when we did some of these interviews. So these are exciting times. But many people still don't really understand what a citizens' assembly is. So mm -hmm. I, it's incredibly important, I think, that we try and get the message out, both in this podcast and in XR Films and uh, through the media as to what it is that we're actually asking for. Yes, so we had a great chat with Matthew Taylor, who is the chief executive of the RSA, which is the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. And they are all about 21st century enlightenment and progressive thought. And Matthew's worked in uh, policy for the government and is now exploring deliberative democracy, which, which citizens' assemblies are a part of. So uh, let's have a listen and see what he had to say about this. So I've been a fan of deliberative democracy for a very long time. Um, I ran IPPR, the think tank, in the kind of early uh, noughties. And IPPR was the first organisation to hold a citizen's jury in this country. And so I kind of picked up the bug from there. And when I was in government, I tried to persuade Tony Blair when I worked for him and then Gordon Brown when I didn't work for him, but I knew the people who did work for him to undertake deliberative processes. In both cases, they were initially keen and officials were initially keen until they found out you couldn't control the outcomes and then uh, things kind of deteriorated into much more conventional consultation methods. So it's always been there for me. But I think that the travails of liberal democracy uh, have brought it right back to the forefront of my mind. And obviously the way we tackle the challenges we face is multifaceted. But I keep coming back now to the idea that the fundamental problem is the weakness of our kind of hierarchical institutions of which the state government is, is the most important. 
um, I think we have a more broad problem about leadership in our society, which I think is actually is related to neoliberalism in ways I'm happy to go into. But um, it's the state that's the kind of primary hierarchical institution. And basically, politics, government are broken. And um, although I don't think making politics work and making government work will solve all our problems, I don't think we can solve any other problems until those institutions renew their legitimacy. And for me, democratic reform uh, is an incredibly important part of that programme. And when I look at the problems of democracy, the specific problems of democracy, one of the issues that comes up time and time again is representation. I, I think our representative democratic system has got deep problems. I think that the flaws that always existed in that system have now become almost unbearable. And so we need a solution. Now, politicians are aware of this, and they've tried to deal with it in various ways. The two most obvious is they've outsourced decisions to kind of non-political organisations, to Quankos, whether it's the National Institute for Clinical Excellence that decides what drugs we're allowed to have, or the Bank of England that decides interest rates, or the Committee on Climate Change, which does some really great work. They're going to outsource the difficult stuff to non-groups made up of experts rather than politicians. And then also, catastrophically, they have had recourse to direct democracy in the form of referenda. Um, what would you say is deliberative democracy? You know, it's a, a really important question. And, and before I answer it, let me just say that one of the things that's interesting to me about deliberative democracy is that the problem with it is not actually that people are hostile to it. So you think of other democratic reforms representation. Some people are just dead set against it. They prefer first past the post, strong leadership. Uh, reform of the House of Lords. All these issues, they've got lots of points. I very rarely meet anyone who's opposed to deliberative democracy. The problem is very few people, people know what it is. So what is deliberative democracy? It's fundamentally processes which uh, take a representative cross-section of the population, and then those groups will be given uh, materials and information that reflect the whole gamut of opinions around the debate that the issue they're being asked to look at. And then they will typically spend two or two days, sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's three or four days, working with experts, uh, having witness sessions, and then working as a group with moderators and facilitators to consider the issue. And then at the end, they will generate a set of recommendations. Now, there are quite a few different methods within that basic set of principles. But the key principle is it's a set of ordinary citizens who represent the public, who spend time getting to understand an issue in depth in a process that is moderated to encourage them to collaborate and to seek consensus. So as our third demand from, uh, of Extinction Rebellion is having a citizen's assembly, do you feel there is now an appetite for deliberative democracy in the UK? Uh, I think awareness of deliberative democracy is growing. I think the first thing to say is around the world, it is certainly growing and growing at pace. So we are really lagging behind, actually. Many other countries now use this method, these methods. Um, lots of cities use it uh, routinely. And not just as a one-off now, as a built-in part of the way in which they make decisions about budgets and about priorities. So it works all around the world. And, you know, actually the evidence is overwhelmingly positive. You know, you look at all sorts of other policy initiatives and they work some places, they don't work others. But deliberation seems to work just about everywhere in one way or another. I think the enthusiasm is growing here. We have seen experimentation. Last year, for example, working with the charity Involve, which is really the kind of what works centre for, for deliberative methodologies. The Select Committee for Health and Social Care and the Select Committee, I think, for Work and Pensions got together, Citizens Jury worked over two weekends to explore ways of funding social care. 
What I found interesting about that was when that Select Committee report was published, there was quite a lot of coverage of it, but very little of the coverage, none of the coverage on the BBC, for example, mentioned that there'd been a citizen's jury, which takes me to something I'll talk about in a second, which is the media is a real problem, I'm afraid, in, in this regard. I'm not one of those people who lazily blames the media all the time, but they are, an issue, they are a real issue in, in relation to the British democracy. So I think there is growing enthusiasm. We're working with a group of parliamentarians now, Obviously, the issue's been kind of slightly hijacked by Brexit because people talk about Citizens' Assembly as a way of dealing with Brexit. And I think that no one thinks that a Citizens' Assembly could be called now. They take a few months to set up. But assuming that some kind of deal is agreed, there's then going to be another couple of years of detailed negotiations. So I think the attention is now moving to saying, well, can we have a Citizens' Assembly at the beginning of that process so that we can possibly have a more rational uh, evolutionary process than we've had over the last two years, which has been you know, a disaster. So on the one hand, I kind of feel, well, it would be something we could or should have used for Brexit and could still use for Brexit. On the other hand, I kind of wish Brexit would go away so that we could focus on its use in, variety, in relation to other issues, for example, as Caroline Lucas was arguing here two weeks ago, climate change. So as Extinction Rebellion, an ideal scenario for us would be that we go out onto the streets and cause some trouble and the government's like, actually, we agree with this. We will now create a citizens assembly on climate change. Do you think that's wishful thinking? Do you think the government would ever consider doing something like that? I mean, I know this is all hypothetical, but what sort of thing do you think would need to happen for the government to actually say, okay, yes, we're, go we're going to do this? Yeah, uh, well, we're kind of developing a campaign, and I think the campaign is based upon the idea that you need to try to influence people in a whole variety of different ways. So, you know, we are trying to build a kind of public awareness and public campaign so that more members of the public support it. Because at the moment, the problem is the public don't understand what this is. And when it is proposed, it's proposal by people like me. So people think, well, it's obviously a ruse for people like you to get the public to agree with you. So, you know, we have to kind of go through quite a lot of process of getting the public to understand this. And I think one of the, one of the reasons, to be fair to politicians, why they don't use it, is that they can often, their issue is counteracting public cynicism. But if the public are cynical and they say, well, let's try this thing the public's never heard of, they'll just get a wave of cynicism, which is, well, you're bound to rig it, and you know, it won't really be balanced, and who are these people? So we have to raise public awareness of it, so the public understands this is not some wild and wacky idea, but it's something which happens all around the world and works. And then we need to engage, I think, with a variety of institutions, uh, businesses, charities, and others, part of the reason I'm happy to talk to you today, and actually I was delighted that it is part of one of your, one of your core demands, to say, look, this might be a, a, a mechanism that you can use. It's interesting for me, I'm talking to business leaders. Quite a lot of business leaders are intrigued by this because they kind of think, okay, well, I, I have to kind of internalise quite difficult conflicts. So, you know, for a business, they face these kind of dilemmas all the time. And so, you know, I'm, they're quite interested. So the second strand is to get a number of organisations in civil society who have got problems who, or who recognise that government is not willing to tackle difficult problems. So I was talking to an organisation, Remain Nameless, the other day, and, you know, they were just saying, look, most people know that we ought to have road pricing because, you know, uh, it works in other countries and, you know, it's a good market-based system to encourage people to drive anywhere they need to drive and to... Raise, if we have to spend more money on roads to raise money from motorists themselves, but it's just a political hot potato. If you had a citizen's jury and you said, how should we fund future road building, you would probably find that road pricing would be the thing that emerged. So 
That's the second bit. Engage a whole lot of organizations in understanding this might be a mechanism which can get rid of a kind of logjam. And then finally, the politicians themselves. And that's the hardest bit, really, because not only do you have to overcome their kind of ignorance, and you have to, interestingly, you have to have overcome the fact that, you know, if you're a politician, you often have quite whatever they say. They have quite a jaundiced view of the public, because generally speaking, when public engage with politicians, it's to shout at them. So you have to kind of say to the politicians, no, actually, the public really, really can do this and they enjoy doing it. And But it's also difficult politicians because in terms you're saying, look, we're going to take some of your job off you. You know, we're going to trust ordinary citizens to, to, to do this stuff. And, you know, I, what we're finding is the MPs who are keenest are often younger MPs. There seems to be a, a predominance of female MPs as well who are kind of happier to share power. So that that's the third bit. But, you know, you, you, in my experience, you don't solve a problem by just one intervention. You've got to have multiple interventions. You've got to try and work at this in lots of different ways. And you never know what's the thing that's going to shift the dial. Um, now, we at Extinction Rebellion believe that IPCC, well, we don't quite believe them. We believe they're a bit conservative and that we only have 12 years to try and sort out the emissions problem. Is it going to take 12 years for you to get citizens' assemblies accepted in this country? Well, you know, if we had a government that was doing all that should be done, you know, and I don't, this will be a controversial thing to say to you, I don't think this government is doing nothing, you know, there is the Climate Change Committee, there are things happening, you know, it, it is put to a certain extent sustainability into its kind of industrial strategy, but not nearly as much as it should, but it's not like we're pushing against a completely closed door, the door's a little bit open, we just need to push it harder and faster. So, you know, if there was a government tomorrow that said, look, we are going to quadruple our efforts here, I, I wouldn't, and maybe this is hypocritical of me. I wouldn't be saying, oh, I'll have a citizen's jury. I'd just say, get on with it, to be honest. But, you know, I don't, I think the problem is that although I believe, as I'm sure you believe, that in the long term, a sustainable world will actually be a better world, a world of better well-being and a more equal and just world, there are difficult things we have to do in the short to medium term. And that's one of the great things about deliberative democracy is that when citizens fully understand an issue, they understand the trade-offs that are involved, they make the right brave decision and that can help politicians so one of my favorite examples is in the 90s the energy authority in texas texas organized a citizen assembly around renewable energy or sustainable energy and it came to the conclusion that texas needed to massively increase its investment in renewables particularly wind and texas went from being i think the second worst to the second best state in america in terms of its use of renewable energy so you know that's the kind of thing that can then happen with this process so no, you know, we get a brilliant leader tomorrow and they're willing to do the right thing, get on with it. But maybe a citizens' assembly is going to be the way to actually help politicians who are not as committed as we might want to believe they can go a bit further and faster. Is representative democracy finished, do you think? No, and no, and I'm really glad you asked me that question. Deliberative democracy is there to assist representative democracy. We couldn't run the country through a constant process of deliberation. There, there are many problems with representation. But let me just kind of go through two or three. The first problem of representation is that it's just an incredibly blunt mandate. We, we elect every five years a, a group of politicians who the, the, the party winning generally gets no more than about 30% of potential voters who vote for them, with on a manifesto that typically contains about 300 policies. And then they're elected to deal with a world which is unpredictable. So actually most of what they've got to do is nothing to do with their manifesto. They've got to respond to events. And as I sometimes say, you know, we like supermarkets more than we like politicians. But imagine if every five years we had an election for our favourite supermarket and the one that was chosen by three in ten people then became the supermarket we had to go to. And not only did we have to go to it, but that supermarket could tell us what we had to put in our basket 
Well, we would sure enough hate Tesco's in that, in that kind of world. So, you know, that's the first issue, kind of really blunt mandate. The second issue is that politicians, as we're watching at the moment, are not necessarily all the time responding to their constituents or even to their conscience. A lot of the time they're responding to the pressures within their party. So, you know, you have politicians and they are very strongly influenced by what happens in their parties and their parties are not terribly representative of anybody other than those who are deeply politically committed. So that's the second problem of representation. You know, and what you see in lots of parts of the world, actually, you see this in France with the Gilets Jaunes, is you see a protest and the protest is people who say, we are the half that is not being represented anymore. So these are the problems of representation. Now, my view about liberal democracy is not, well, it sweeps away representation, but it can renew representation. It can help with that problem of the blunt mandate. It can give politicians a right to say to their parties, look, I know what you want as a party, but look, this is what citizens decided, and I'm going to respond to them. So I think it can help and enhance and re-legitimise representation. Extinction Rebellion podcast. I enjoyed that. It seemed to be a very succinct uh, summary of why democracy isn't working at the moment. I think we all know in our bones that that is the case. But it isn't really addressing citizens' assemblies themselves, and that's what we now want to turn to. Marine, you have special knowledge of this area because of your work in the Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, so I'm the coordinator for the Citizens' Assembly Working Group with XR. So I've been learning so much ever since I got involved with that group about citizens' assemblies and how they help in the deliberative democracy process. So I'm delighted to introduce our next guest, who is Sarah Allen, Head of Engagement at Involve, which is the UK's leading public participation charity. Citizens' Assembly brings together a representative sample of the population, so people from all walks of life. It brings them together in one place and there they learn about the issue they're going to be discussing. They have time to kind of discuss the evidence they've heard with one another and then they make recommendations about the way forwards. Usually Citizens' Assemblies here are held outside of London just for a bit of variation. So the ones we've run have been in Manchester, in Birmingham and in Belfast so far, um, as well as in a few other locations. So Sarah, if I was an assembly member, would I be in a big building? Would it look like a court? How would it feel to the people who were actually part of it? So you'd probably be in a hotel because we look for venues where, because they tend to last for the whole weekend, people's kind of rooms are in the same building as the as where the assembly takes place. They can take all their meals in the building. And that just makes it more comfortable for people. So it means that they can go back to their rooms at lunchtime or when we have breaks. It's just a bit nicer for them, really, which is what we're aiming at. You'd probably also be in quite a nice hotel. So citizen assemblies are quite intense things to be part of. And we want to make sure people are kind of definitely comfortable even one of the places we had had a little bit of a spa that people could use kind of in the breaks. So you'd, you'd be somewhere pretty nice. Um, when you went into the assembly room itself, you'd see a number of round tables with seats around them. So how many round tables depends on how many assembly members there were. But say there was about 50, you're probably talking seven, eight tables with a number of chairs around each of them, mostly for participants, but also one seat at each table for a table facilitator. When you go in and see people round the tables, you see a diversity of people at each table because we do a seating plan. Because there's no point in having a diversity of people in the room if all the people who are similar to each other in various ways sit together. So we always mix it up. Mm -hmm. 
we also change the seating plan between different days. So that you do that for a variety of reasons. So the first one is that people can speak to an even wider range of people because they sit with different people on different days. Um, but it's also a way to stop kind of little irritations people are having with each other blowing up into something more serious because you know people cope for a day but if you really had to stomach per someone you weren't getting on with for a second day that might be a bit much. You would also see um, a couple of people at the front, they'd be the lead facilitators who are going to explain what's happening from the front and you'd probably see a couple of other people walking around and they'd be the expert leads so people who are real experts in whatever the topic to be discussed is who can answer questions when, when there aren't speakers in the room. And speaking of the facilitators and the experts, how do they get selected? So the facilitators are usually an organisation like Involve. So they're people who aren't experts in the subject matter. So in the case of the Citizens Assembly you're calling for, we wouldn't be experts in climate change, but we're experts in how you design and run the Assembly. And during the Assembly, we don't talk at all about the content. So we'll never talk about climate change. We just talk about, well, the next exercise is this, and the thing you should be doing now is this, and the break is then. And that's one of the ways we keep our independence. The expert leads have quite an interesting role. So we talked about there being a learning phase for the assembly, and actually that's usually done through external speakers, so advocates of different points of view. People hear from all of them, get a chance to question them. The expert leads do the bit that isn't that. So the learning phase actually has two stages. So before you hear from all the advocates, you have a stage where kind of the basic factual elements of the issue are explained. So what is climate change? What is the UK's current policy on it? How are we doing against it? What efforts are happening around the world? What are the consequences of different levels of degrees of warming? That kind of background bit, what key terms are, so that everybody knows them. Because otherwise the advocates of different positions come in and, and people won't follow what they say if they didn't know a lot about the issue to start with. So they, the expert leads present that first factual bit. So you do the learning phase where people hear from the speakers and kind of get a chance to question them. And then the speakers will leave and people spend time discussing what they've heard and reaching their decisions. And during that phase, they can have questions. So they can be, oh, what did that speaker say about that? Or actually, we didn't ask this question of this speaker, but we think that we should have done. And it's really important to have an expert in the room to be able to answer those questions. So the expert leads, they, they have to kind of think about how they answer carefully because they're not allowed to express an opinion. They have to answer the question by saying, well, um, the, the range of opinion on that, the answer to that question is, well, some people think this and some people think that, unless it's a straight factual question when they can just obviously give a straight factual answer. The, the members of the assembly are going to be picked at random. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that process? How's that going to work? I mean, can we all be expecting a letter through our letterbox and, you know, invited? Um, how, how does that process work? So there's actually different ways of recruiting members for Citizens' Assembly. Some of them are kind of more gold standard than others. The gold standard way to do it is called sortition. And actually, although I know you were semi-joking, yes, you could probably expect a letter through your door. So how sortition works is it takes the postcode database in the UK or in some countries, the most comprehensive list is the electoral register. And it randomly selects a large number of people off that and it posts them a letter, a specially designed letter with an envelope. 
and then people respond to that letter saying whether or not they'd be interested in taking part and whether they're free on the dates that the assembly would be happening. So that just goes to a huge amount of people. So to get about 60 assembly members, you'd probably send it to about 10,000 households. So once you get that back, um, you then do what we call stratified sampling. So citizens' assembly members are usually representative of the wider population in terms of demographics, so things like age, gender, social class, ethnicity, and they're also usually representative in terms of key attitudinal factors. So if we know, for example, what the range of opinion on climate change is or how green people are in whatever the population is in general, then we would recruit to make sure that the assembly accurately reflected that range of opinion. So from that we have a number of criteria. So we know we need so many people of this age bracket, so many at this age bracket, and we take from that pool, person by person, randomly, fill them in against those criteria. And as criteria become full, certain people get excluded from being picked because they take us over a certain number. And that's how it works. Then you invite all those people, say, you know, congratulations, you've been accepted. So that's the gold standard way to do it. Um, and it's how we do it if we have time. Next, Sarah told us about the process of selecting the experts. So you tend to pick your expert leads by asking stakeholders who they would trust to be neutral and disinterested on the issue. That's certainly how we got our expert leads on social care. So you, you're trying very hard to find people that all the stakeholders on an issue trust in the first place. Secondly, you don't just have expert leads. So they're the people in the room, but you also have for a citizens' assembly an advisory panel made up of people from the whole range of perspectives on the issue that you're considering. So the expert leads aren't just sort of answering off their own back, they're answering based on what this representative advisory panel felt was a neutral answer to a question. So that's also really important. And if these things are commissioned, you know, when they're commissioned by parliament, parliamentary committees, the committees also have sight of all of these things there, checking it too for accidental bias. So there's quite a lot of rigour before you ever get to the assembly to make sure that it's all pucker, I suppose, is the way to put it. Um, in the same way, speakers are very carefully briefed. So when you're looking at what speakers you want, yes, you want them representing different viewpoints, but you want to make sure also that they're covering all the different arguments on those different viewpoints. So you brief speakers really carefully, saying, you know, you're the person who's coming in there on this area from this viewpoint, we need you to cover X, Y, Z and Q. And you give it, because most of these assemblies are multi-weekend processes, if a speaker doesn't follow what they're meant to say, they miss something out, we always have a space at the beginning of the second weekend where we do kind of unanswered questions for the first weekend and we slip into that anything a speaker was meant to cover and didn't to make sure that people do have a comprehensive set of information in the end. Um, so these are all different ways of ensuring balance, which is part of what you were getting at, but you were also talking about transparency and if things are recorded. So um, part of how much is recorded is just a question of budget. So it's absolutely possible to record all speaker presentations to the Assembly and you can also put, and we did for the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit, um, microphones on every table and we recorded the lot. You have to balance transparency against people's privacy, particularly nowadays where people can get trolled online and all of this kind of thing. We think you have to give people the right to remain anonymous as participants but obviously if it's an audio recording you can't tell them I mean I'd have to have a think about whether you'd release it as a transcript mm. rather than that you could hear people's voices I mm. think as well as an additional level of protection but there's certainly no problem with making available those transcripts so people can see what was said. When we've discussed citizens assemblies just in general sometimes people will say 
uh, that they think that some of their fellow citizens uh, aren't intelligent enough to deliberate on some of these big questions. How would you answer that? I would say that I've never met someone at all the citizens' assemblies that we've run who was unable to follow and engage with the evidence that they've heard. Um, And we monitor that quite carefully. So we give people questionnaires at every stage of the process and say to them, you know, do you feel able to understand the evidence that you're hearing? Do you feel you're able to kind of follow what the rest of your group is saying? And we've always had massively positive readouts from that with people saying that they are. And, you know, if once you take out jargon and you structure things clearly and you break it down, people can follow it, get all key terms out the way. People get to ask that the um, clarification questions to that original panel too so you don't just get a presentation and then move on to the next bit you get to think about and write down for themselves what they feel are the most important arguments they've heard and then there'll be a table discussion about what as a table they felt the most important arguments Mm. were so you've had quite a lot of processing of that information Mm. rather than just hearing the speeches and then trying to get to a decision the other way that you make it kind of easier for people or accessible for everybody to get to a decision is by making that decision making process really step by step so often the first thing you'll do is to get people to discuss what principles they think should underpin the policy area or or what the key um what's another word principle or the guidelines that should kind of underpin that area and so you get people to think about those first and then move them on to kind of more detailed decision making so you make sure people are going through a logical process so you're not just saying you know here's some information discuss decide it's a bit more structured than that and what about dominating personalities i mean there will be some people who will ask lots and lots of questions and like the sound of their own voice and then there'll be people who will hardly volunteer any questions at all how is that managed it's all about facilitation techniques and they're really important the first thing is that people do not not ask speakers their questions themselves so when a speaker's finished speaking, we give everybody a chance to write down one question per poster, what question they would like to ask the speaker. And then when the table comes to deciding what the priority question should be, every individual starts by sharing what questions they've got. Then the table makes a collective decision about which questions are most important. But then the facilitator is the person who actually asks the questions to the speakers. And that gets around you know, people who don't feel confident to ask a question in front of other people And that technique that we use as part of that, which is about getting individuals to think about what they think first and then starting a group discussion by individuals putting forward their point of view, also really helps with dominant personalities. So everyone's had to say something, everyone understands a bit about where everyone's coming from. It's remarkable how much difference that makes. In addition to that, you have your table facilitator who can sit on the table and watch what the dynamics happening Um, and we always set conversation guidelines at the start of an assembly and we do it with people we get people to suggest them and then we kind of compile them overnight so assistance assembly starts on a friday evening usually so we get people to put all their ideas in on friday night and then by saturday morning we've got a list and by people kind of setting those with you it, it really helps people stick to them when the public know what it is and they're asked you know whether they trust the outcomes of a citizens assembly versus what a parliament decided or a government they are as or more likely to accept the results of the citizens assembly than they are of other ways of decision making because the results suggest they see these people taking part as people like them people who don't have a vested interest or another agenda they're just as citizens thinking what the right thing is so generally once people know about it there's a positive reaction to it 
in terms of politicians, I'd say that there's increasing interest in this kind of methodology at the moment. So um, last year, the Citizens' Assembly on Social Care that we ran for two committees in Parliament is the first time the UK Parliament has commissioned one of these. And I know there's considerable interest in that from amongst various politicians and officials. There's a lot of interest in techniques that can bring people together to find a common way forward on issues that are contentious on, on which perhaps the government has struggled to find ways forward in recent years. And so I'd say that now would be a really good time to be calling for Citizens' Assembly because I think you'll probably get a warmer reception to it than you would have done in the past. In terms of whether a Citizens' Assembly has influence, in some ways that's much less about how it's actually run. So it isn't that the Irish Citizens' Assembly on abortion was particularly run in any different way to those that have happened elsewhere. It's that the Citizens' Assembly was commissioned by Parliament in the first place, with Parliament really open to listening to what it was that the Assembly said. So there's different ways that the Assembly can have influence. So first of all, it can be commissioned by Parliament, by government, by committees in Parliament who are really serious about listening to it. And then you're kind of baking in some influence to begin with. Or um, if you're going to run it not commissioned by Parliament or government, then you need to do all the normal things that you do for a campaign to make your campaign really strong. So you maybe you want to think about who's on the advisory group, um, you'd want to think about you know, celebrity endorsement, your whole campaign strategy for how you were going to kind of push the results of it. But, you know, I'm not a campaigner, so that, that would be something that was, that was for you. Now, this is the moment of truth. Do you think it's a good idea to be calling for a citizens' assembly on climate change? I do think it's a good idea to be calling for a citizens' assembly on climate change because citizens' assemblies are really good ways for helping politicians and society move forward on complex and controversial issues and climate change is certainly one of those so I think it's an excellent idea um, and I think it could happen at all different levels as well so I think you could do it at a UK level and um, you could do it at a devolved level because quite a lot of policy areas relevant policy areas are devolved you could also do it at a local level so where you've got councils that are declaring a climate emergency there'd be the obvious places to run one of these on a more local level so I think there's there's plenty of opportunities and it is just the right time to be calling for it. What do you think about our question how do we get the UK to zero net emissions by 2025? Personally I'm less keen on that question as someone who designs citizens assemblies to give people a say on the policy making process and my issue with it is that net zero by 2025 currently isn't government policy. So if you hold an assembly on that and you get people to say what they do to get us to that point, the government would be perfectly legitimate to say, well, that's not our policy, so why are the findings of your citizens' assembly relevant to what we're saying? What I would do if I were you is to hold a citizens' assembly on a much broader question, so what should be the UK's response to climate change? And then you could ask people for a number of outputs under that. So you could ask them what principles you should, they think rather, um, should be underpinning the UK's climate change policy. You could ask them what they, potentially, what they think the government's climate change target should be. And you could ask them, and I would definitely ask them this, what areas they think action should be being taken on to cut emissions and what they think those actions should look like. So you could ask them a number of things, but I think... In general, with citizens' assemblies, you're trying not to prejudge what people think going into the citizens' assembly, so not to tell them that it's a 2025 target. The other thing that people are constantly asking us is, how long will the citizens' assembly take? 
will we have an answer in the next couple of months? It depends on the topic and it depends what outputs you want. So if you were going to want to look at what the government's target on climate change should be as well as what areas action should be taken in and what that action should be, then it would take longer than if you were missing the bit about the target and just wanting to look at what areas action should be taken in and what that is. I was thinking about this before we talked and I think you should probably be aiming for a citizens' assembly of between two and four weekends. Three might be the optimal number, so two weekends of hearing evidence and a third one for people to reach decisions. And I was just a bit hesitant if you were doing the, the kind of target as well, whether you'd need a fourth weekend because it'd take a bit longer to make a decision. Mm. I think that's about right. I mean, you could always hear kind of endless evidence on these sorts of questions, but citizens' assemblies are expensive to run in some senses. So they're not expensive in the sense that if they allow you to move forward on an issue that's stuck, you can have so much progress and save so much money in the long run but as a one-off cost for involving the public people tend to see them as quite high so you don't want to make the cost so exorbitant that you can't raise the money or you put people off commissioning it but you do want to make it long enough to give people a reasonably good grounding so i think you're looking at two weekends of evidence one or two of deliberation say you had a two-month run-in and then the weekends i'd say that that was very doable so if the government were to commission it tomorrow <laughs> then uh, in six months' time, we would potentially have some answers. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for all your time and these brilliant answers. I think this has given us so much more clarity on, on what it is and what to expect. And um, yeah, I'm feeling a bit more hopeful now as well, <laughs> to be honest. So um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Extinction Rebellion. Listening to Sarah talking about Citizens' Assembly, I was really reassured because it seems like it's been tried and tested in many other countries although for some reason we haven't heard about it too much in our own media and what they seem to do is to bring people together on an issue instead of polarizing them as well that that's very reassuring it was also really interesting to hear the nuts and bolts about it because i think it can seem like a very abstract idea um, and it really brought it home that it's real people in a place talking to each other. Mm, yeah, even for me, having done so much research on citizens' assemblies over the past few months with XR, getting really getting a picture of what it's going to be like and how it's going to feel to be part of it, it's, it's just really brought it to life. So it's it's really exciting. And it's it's also exciting that, you know, at the time that we are now recording this, this sort of dream of a citizens' assembly could actually become reality in the not too distant future. So I, in fact, to me, it's almost like we've been sleepwalking. I mean, everybody thinks democracy isn't working very well. So why haven't we been more creative around that idea before now? Yeah, and uh, we spoke to Rupert Reid about this, and he teaches philosophy at the University of East Anglia, but he's most known for uh, being a prominent spokesperson for the Green Party, and he's a member of Extinction Rebellion. So it's partly a crisis of short-termism. Our politics is thoroughly uh, short-termist, and it's thoroughly factional, and it's thoroughly broken. So what we're saying in Extinction Rebellion is that we have to go beyond politics as normal. We cannot wait around for our democracy to sort itself. We have to have a, a, a radical, more participatory democracy that is going to do a better job. So how do we get there? Part of the point in Extinction Rebellion is to say, 
We need to tell the truth about the climate emergency. We need massive, rapid emissions reductions we need in this country to get to carbon zero by 2025. We need also massive, rapid adaptation to the climate chaos that is already unfolding. And because of the time lags in the climate system, it's bound to get worse. Even if everything changes quickly as we want, it's bound to get worse for another generation. That's part of the tragedy of the short-termism that we're faced with. So the point of the third demand, the Citizens' Assembly's demand, is to say, to supplement or possibly to supplant the representative democracy that we have, we need to have a, a people's democracy based on the principle of sortition and that the citizens' assemblies should be the ones who sort out how we implement the changes that are absolutely required. Would we organise a citizens' assembly? What we really want, right, is for the citizens' assemblies to be properly um, organised and vested with uh, authority through the, uh, through the state. And that's an ideal scenario. Uh, that could come about if, for example, Extinction Rebellion is quite successful and forces the government into negotiations. We could force them to concede some kind of role for a citizens' assembly or citizens' assemblies. And these things also need to happen um, not just at the national level, but at the local level all around the country to supplement uh, our failing uh, local government institutions as well. That's the ideal scenario. If we can't get that, then maybe we'll try to get citizens' assemblies set up by people themselves, but even then it wouldn't be Extinction Rebellion as such that was running them. Extinction Rebellion wants to create a situation where citizens' assemblies get created, but they're not going to be um, the puppets, as it were, of Extinction Rebellion. We're just the, the means, we're not the, uh, the end goal. My own view, this is a little bit controversial, but my own view is that they should also include uh, children. Uh, how young should the children be? Well, in this country, the age of criminal responsibility is 10 years old. Um, some might say that's too young, but anyway, that's a fact. That's the age of criminal responsibility in this country. In my view, if you're old enough to be a criminal, you're also old enough to have good thoughts about what the future should be, and you could potentially be a, a member of one of these citizens' assemblies. And I think we've seen recently the incredible power and integrity of many of the younger generation in the climate school strikes. I think it'd be fantastic to have some of those kids represented on these bodies and empowered on these bodies. The most important point of all, though, is that... The citizens' assemblies would be there to implement the widely accepted idea that if we accept, as everyone surely should and must accept now, that there is a climate emergency, that we do need then to make these drastic emissions cuts and we do need to make drastic moves to adapt. And what the citizens' assemblies are there to do is to ensure that that is done in a way that has wide democratic buy-in. In other words, it's about the how. How do we do it? So what kind of things are you, are you going to prioritise, for example? Are you going to make public transport uh, free? Or are you going to uh, radically change planning policies? Or how are you going to incentivize the kind of changes in our agricultural practices that are necessary? There's a thousand dimensions uh, to this. The citizens' assemblies are there to decide how it gets done. So it wouldn't be us fixing things at all. It couldn't be. It would be giving power to the citizens' assemblies to decide these things. We wouldn't be seizing it for ourselves. In that sense, the Extinction Rebellion is nothing like a sort of Leninist revolution or something. It's not saying, you know, give us all the levers of power and we'll, we'll run the country. We're giving the power to the people to run the country in such a way that the country can flourish into the future and not be destroyed by the climate and ecological emergency that is otherwise unfolding. Um, something which I definitely think you should have is that there should be a citizens' assembly which is focused on adaptation. 
We can't just think about this in terms of preventing the problem because it's too late for that. We can't just think about it in terms of mitigating the problem. It's too late for that as well. We know that on the climate front and probably also on the biodiversity front, things are going to get significantly worse for a long time to come. There's no way around that. So we have to do a lot of adaptation. We have to be ready to think about, for example, the growing problems of floods that we're going to have in this country over the next uh, uh, generation. Um, how to deal with those in a way, those problems of flooding in a way that is uh, responsible uh, and that doesn't make uh, the problems uh, even worse, as you can make problems worse, for example, if you have highly carbon intensive schemes to manage uh, flooding, building walls, stuff like that. Uh, I would say there should be more than one citizens assembly, certainly at the national level. And remember also that we're going to need citizens' assemblies all around uh, the country. And in fact, that may well be where things start. If you get some kind of local authority or even some kind of local media organization or something which is willing to try to dip its toe in the ponds, it may well be that you get the first citizens' assemblies, which are something like what we're asking for in localities rather than through Westminster. So this is really interesting, this concept of local citizens' assemblies, because with the Extinction Rebellion Citizens' Assembly Working Group, we are focusing pretty much only on the national one. Um, so, so one of the main things that we are really trying to push for is that to, in order for it to get legitimacy, the Citizens' Assembly would need to be endorsed and also funded, really, by the government, because we've had citizens' assemblies in the past, most notoriously one on um, Brexit, which no one really knew about. You know, it had no effect whatsoever, and it was independent. Uh, the government could just ignore it and sweep it aside. Um, so if we're talking on the local level, who would be the sort of... Would that be local councils, or would it be sort of be like a county-wide thing, or, or how, how do you think that would look? So there are different ways that one could do citizens' assemblies locally. I think the ideal scenario would be if you had citizens' assemblies that were sort of tied to local authority areas, as you're imagining nationally, a citizens' assembly kind of tied to Westminster. Um, you could also, by the way, imagine, and I think this is, would be definitely necessary, citizens' assemblies operating in uh, Cardiff and Edinburgh and Belfast. Um, but if you move to the more local area, you could, you could imagine them happening at the county level, you could imagine them happening at the district level. You could also imagine them happening at the parish uh, level. There are parish councils, you know, why not parish uh, citizens' assemblies, which could be great for, for example, um, some kind of participatory budgeting or participatory financing. Um, could be a really interesting way to, to go with that. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons it's crucial to do this uh, locally is to avoid over-centralization of power, which has been a bane of this country for a long time. And also it's crucial, therefore, because you can get experimentation happening at the local level. For example, you might have some uh, local area that really kind of poured its energy into, it might be creating a local tram system or something. You might have another that, that poured its energy into making everything super kind of pedestrian friendly and cycle friendly and trying to like really eliminate not just uh, cars but all fossil fuel using uh, devices including you know any trains or trams that were using them uh, source for the energy if you don't have it all powered by renewables you know, that, those are just ideas but there's a million ways in which this could happen and i think you want to preserve that space for experimentation and you do that better if you allow uh, more power to, to localities. And I think it could be really invigorating for our democracy. The thing I would ask then is sort of the um, legitimacy, not in the sense of, 
you know, do we believe it? Do we trust it? But legitimacy as in this is now the law, you will stop flying or you will stop, you know, whatever it is that the Citizens Assembly comes out with. If it's on a local level, there wouldn't necessarily be that power, so to speak, for that to be implemented. So it's partly a question of what powers national government allows to local authorities. There are some interesting kind of underused uh, powers. There is a general well-being power, for example, that local authorities have that they don't use very much. They can do anything that is not prohibited by national law to improve the well-being of their local people. Well, maybe that could be exploited to provide room for manoeuvre for citizens' assemblies to do stuff that hasn't been done before. Local authorities can institute various kinds of fines, for example, to provide the stick as well as the, the carrot in terms of traffic offences, in terms of waste, and waste management. You know, all of these areas are really important in terms of climate, in terms of uh, ecology. So the situation that you and Marijn were talking about, I think, uh, was imagining parallel situations of local and national citizens' assembly. What's the point of setting up an independent local assembly if that other, those other structures aren't in place? One of the things that we had in mind there is that what we would hope is that a citizens' assembly which was looking at the situation across Norfolk might reconsider some of the terrible decisions that the local council has made in Norfolk, uh, such as this decision to build this road. And maybe there would be hope that a citizens' assembly presented with the arguments uh, and with expert advice and so on would decide that it wasn't the most sensible of all ideas at a time of climate emergency to build a hulking new uh, road across a beautiful valley. Uh, and that really was an important part of our uh, motivation. And a citizens' assembly which didn't have formal power could still maybe create some kind of pressure around that issue and make it more difficult for those who want to build such a road Again, the ideal scenario, of course, would be that you have a citizens' assembly which was actually empowered to decide how Norfolk should respond to the climate emergency that we're all sharing in. Uh, and hopefully then it would decide to not build such a, a road which tragically the local councillors at the moment are all uh, getting behind the building of. Extinction Rebellion. Okay, Marine. so I'm convinced. <laughs> well, let's go for a citizens' assembly. I'm a lot clearer about some of it. Mm. For, for example, what the process is, how many people it might involve, and what kind of organisation will be running it, and that it will be completely independent. Independent of XR, independent of government, independent even of the experts, yeah. that it's down to individuals to and, do that. And independent of the stakeholders, you know, it's it's going to be impossible for the fossil fuel companies to lobby members of the assembly or anything like that, which is very reassuring. <laughs> and it seems like a really exciting idea for just general politics and democracy in general. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm still a little bit worried about resistance to the idea because it's an unfamiliar concept to a lot of people in the UK even though it's been used right across the world yeah just in our country in you know just in the conversations that are happening yeah. you don't hear about it that often yeah that's true but thanks to the last 10 days of rebelling and all the media attention we've been getting and the even the attention from the government now this is really starting to change and people are talking about this now and MPs are 
writing to each other about it. And it's it. been mentioned in the House of Commons during the debates as well. So uh, that's really hopeful. And, and Marianne, partly it's also been you working on the <laughs> platforms during the rebellion. I've seen you. We've been drilling the, the <laughs> idea. Everyone now knows what a Citizens' Assembly is. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, we're in a very hopeful moment, I think, yes, for that. it's very exciting. Very exciting. Extinction, oh, rebellion.